Thanks for downloading the Fantasy Animation Podcast, brought to you by fantasy-animation.org. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to help us grow our audience, there are a few simple ways you can help. You can tell your friends about the show, either physically or online. Physically, well, hopefully you know how that works. Just um, tell people you know, get them to download the podcast, get them subscribing on various platforms. Online, you can like and retweet our posts on Twitter, share our posts on Facebook, and help us out in any other online platform that you work on. These seem like simple gestures, but they can be really, really influential in getting our word out, sharing our new content with our new listeners, and and basically helping us grow. You can also give us a rating on iTunes, um, as well as if you are an academic or someone with a bit of cash to burn, you can buy our book, Fantasy Animation Connections Between Media, Media and Genres, available on Amazon as well as other publishing platforms. Um, The book hovers around the 30 to 50 pound mark, so a little bit pricey for some, but if you do have the money out there or you're looking to buy new books for your library, um, it might make a great addition. Anything like that would help us grow the platform and continue doing what we love doing. But for now, enjoy the show. Hello listeners far and wide and welcome to this latest instalment of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me Chris Holliday and me Alex Sargent. So for this episode we are delighted to be joined by celebrated animator, director and writer Barry J.C. Purvis, a figure many of our listeners I'm sure will already be familiar with. Um, it's fair to say that Barry is a connoisseur of all things animation, um, they're particularly stop motion and puppet I think um, and his experience with the medium uh, reads like a greatest his package. So uh, Barry thank you for joining us on the podcast. Delight- I'm delighted to be here. In my own house, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and what a house it is. I wish you could see it, listeners, because there's, there's posters, there's puppets, there's all, all uh, magi- there's there's magical magical There's <laughs> there's well, you know. um, So, um, to give a bit of a snapshot, Barry's worked at um, British, several British animation studios, Cosgrove Hall, um, and later at Ardman, and uh, as well as directing his own animated films during the 80s and well into the 90s and beyond. Um, uh, was also head animator uh, on the 1996 Tim Burton feature Mars Attacks, and worked alongside fantasy filmmaker Peter Jackson on, on Lord of the Rings, the Return of the King, and as we'll discuss today, Jackson's 2005 feature King Kong as the pre-visualization animation director, which we'll also talk about. What a fascinating title. Thank you, Barry, for, for, for joining us on the podcast, and it's a great pleasure to, to have you. Um, so I've tried to give a bit of a cross-section or a snapshot of your career thus far, and, and we'll do our best, I think, to talk about it as best we can, but we'll try and gravitate as well and focus with a little bit more fervor, I guess, on King Kong uh, and your experience on the film. Yes. But really, um, I guess our first kind of question for you is, is talking a little bit about your involvement in the film. How did you come to work on the film? Um, yeah, talking a little bit about that journey, I guess, into the, the, the 2005 version. Okay. To um, Skull Island. To Skull Island. There we go. Set sail. It, it was an extraordinary experience and one I wouldn't change. Um, but I've been involved with the two big features, um, Mars Attacks and uh, King Kong. And both times, I've been there too early. All <laughs> oh, right, <laughs> which is very interesting. It was an eye opener how things work. Um, when I was on Mars Attacks, they were still not quite sure how they were going to do it. There was a loose script, and there was a loose idea to use stop motion, 
But then 1995 was when uh, CG had just happened on Jumanji. Yeah, right, yeah. And the producer had come off Jumanji and said, look, we can put convincing real animals in Jumanji, elephants and zebras. Yeah. We could do the same with Martians. But it was meant to be a homage to Ray Harryhausen and the B-movies of the 50s. But eventually, economics and new technology and a new toy sort of got the better of us. And we had set up a stop-motion studio over there. Uh, Ian McKinnon had taken lots of model makers and we'd got stop-motion animators coming over. Um, But it sort of didn't happen, which was a shame. We were there for about seven, eight months, I think. Oh, wow. Um, And we'd built these lovely puppets. But I think we were involved just when people were working out how to cope with this new technology and the amount of decisions, uh, no, the amount of options it could offer you. If you wanted a, a red handbag, you could press a button and you got a red handbag. If you wanted a green one, you get a, you know, whereas we'd have to make one yeah. red and make it green. And suddenly these different options were um, available. And I think the film gained a lot by being CG and probably lost a little by being not stop motion. How much of the original design of the Martians was indebted to that process then, if you could say? Cause I was like, just going to ask with the CG it, it, versions. It seems yeah. so... Maybe they don't look stop motion in the way they move, but they, they seem invested in that kind of sort of physicality. I don't know. Yes. We sort of worked with Tim and uh, we talked about everyone of how they were to move and... We did watch Norma Desmond in <laughs> Sunset Boulevard with her, you know, she has huge eyes and she flicks from yeah. and she's big. And, you know, she she does big movements, which is big jerky movements, which is quite difficult for a stop motion animator to do because <laughs> sure. it goes against what you do. Um, but we sort of combined Norma Desmond with uh, birds, which have big jerky movements as well. And I think that was the sig- the signature of the Martians is the jerky moves and that they didn't really blink and their big eyes and and you weren't quite sure they were like children on sugar <laughs> as well <laughs> and they were crazy. I have, that sort of jerkiness is definitely what I, I haven't seen the film for a while, but it's definitely what I associate yes. with those Martians. And it's interesting what I was saying. That sort of makes me feel like they would be stop motion. But you're quite right. The whole point of stop motion is to try to erase that sense of jerkiness, right? So it's a well, um, well, you're right. You are right, but not too much. Yeah, yeah I think that's <laughs> well. We and it's interesting that you talk about CGI and well, and I think this maybe speaks to the relationship that we might posit between the new and old older versions of King's yes. King Kong in that way. But when you talked about CG as like a new toy, and I hadn't really thought about Mars Attacks and Jumanji being on this kind of cusp, this mid-90s cusp. It was the cusp. pivotal. Yeah. It was the pivotal. And so that's, I think that's really interesting when you combine it with what you said about this kind of p- broader discourse of loss and gain. And, and it's fascinating, I think, to get an industry perspective or an animator's perspective on the sorts of adjustments and, as you said, decisions and, and yes. whilst also the potential of, of a new technology to think, well, I've made these models this is what CG gives, but this is what CG also takes away. Yes. So it allows you to click handbags and change colours and maybe make it easier to remove fingerprints or have no fingerprints at all, but then there's something else that's being lost. So I, I, that idea of kind of jerkiness, the loss and gain, this idea of the CG being a new <coughs> toy, yeah. 
maybe yeah and, and hopefully when we when we get on to, to King Kong it's exactly that isn't it that what does the new and I think when we watched it we felt what, what's gained by this and what's lost well, by this because you know I was saying I was there probably too early where those decisions hadn't been made oh right okay um, and uh, I got a phone call <laughs> from Weta to say could I come over um, okay I've had two phone calls and if any animators listening don't say no <laughs> to anything. I'd been away from home here uh, for two years on a film called Hamilton Mattress. Yep. Filmed in Bristol. And I'd just got back, literally a matter of day or so, um, and I got a phone call from Randy Cook, on, um, who was working on the first Lord of the Rings movie, saying, would I like to go over and work on Gollum CG? And I thought, I've just been away for two years. and Yeah. In my ignorance then, I said, I don't really know who Gollum is, and I have no CG, and I turned it down. Don't turn it down. Right. Don't, don't don't turn it down. Anyway, they asked me again a few years later on um, at the end of uh, Return of the King. Um, and again, I was, perhaps I was at slightly the wrong time, because they were still filming... They said, come and work on Kong and you'll have 16 animators and do previews and, and, and you can work on the script and everything. When I actually got there, and I said yes, definitely this time, when I actually got there, they were still snowed under with a Return of the King. There was not an animator available. So those films were working simultaneously? Yes, yes. Yeah. Production simultaneously? Um, whether uh, Return of the King was late I don't know but they were working 14 hours a day I've heard stories of so it's yes. become folkloric about how close <laughs> to the wire that movie yes. kind of um, was made but all the resources were into Return of the King naturally yeah. um, and I could watch it every day being filmed and there were points where an email went round and said anybody free to come and be an orc voice um, and in the you know, Peter Jackson studio we did orc voices and elf voices and and you personally was, did an orc yes, voice. Yes. So I should have added voice artists oh, to your I, biography. I, no, I do do a lot of voices. Well, there we yeah. go. Um, well, uh, this is the most important question I've asked of my academic career then. How does one voice an orc? <clears throat> he says adjusting himself. Oh, here we go. Strap in. Akuza. <laughs> oh, that is very good. Very good. I would clap, but I think the microphone won't pick it up. Well, um, and like I think that. that means open the gate. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, we did mass ones, you know, they, they got anybody who was available to come and be an orc. And then I remember they gave us these sort of bamboo flutes and water to drink and sort of whisper and blow over the bamboo flutes um, and be sort of the army of the dead as well. Okay. It's all quite watery and stuff. And I love that because it, it's still hands-on. Yeah. Know, it's still absolutely practical. And I think that will... What was lovely about Weta was the sense of anybody can throw something in and contribute and, and you know, it wasn't just 400 people anonymous. Mm. It had a nice community feel. And what I remember from the end of Return of the King is there were a lot of animators from Bournemouth out there who were young and they looked at me and even though I was stop motion, they said, Barry, I've got to kill a horse how what was the mechanics and and I said well I'm meant to be working on King Kong but I think if you lead Mm -hmm. it from the head and the head is the first to go down or whatever you know let's let's so 
I was sort of, I was in the room while they yeah. were doing it and and these young animators who were having the time of their lives out in New Zealand were sort of asking for performance help, I think. Um, but, you know, Weta really, they were working so hard, but they, as I remember, they shut the studio at lunch and threw everybody out, go and get some sun, mm. go down to the beach, you know, breathe some fresh air and then come back. And there was always amazing food because they did work late to get, uh, you know, get the film finished. So I was there on Kong with not the amount of animators I thought. Right. So are they sort of leaving you to your own devices at this moment? Because Because they've all got, they're all... Yes, they could. They couldn't be thinking about it. Yeah, sure. And there was a script, but there was still this question, like Mars Attacks, how are we going to do Kong? Andy Serkis had been doing Gollum and... Everybody said that worked quite well. So this is the motion capture kind of technology <coughs> yeah, that's being yeah, okay. Because yeah. um, I, I think there's something fascinating about and, and and the way you're talking. You know, these people working on CG and then you you saying even though I'm you know even though I was stop motion, you the the processes don't seem too divorced. Well, um, it's all about performance. Yeah, yeah. The whole you know animation is about performance. Um, but so they were still uncertain whether Kong was going to be animated cg animated right as in full cg as in a completely yes. three-dimensional yes. computer animated yes. or was andy circus going to be kong there was oh, still, I see. there was still all this fluid yeah. thought because right. technology was just going rampant um and anyway i was there to look after the previews we sort of had a script and peter jackson just kept saying show me what kong could do if he was in this situation or show me how he could hold Anne, where he would sit her on his shoulder and, and things. And we had a um, we had a sort of quite a sophisticated wireframe uh, Kong. And I remember Anne was this rather nubile girl in a tennis skirt, which is right. in gym shoes. I don't know where she came from. but um, And we had three dinosaurs, I think, as well. And... I think my role was to concentrate on the Kong and the three dinosaurs moment. Yeah. But we were still trying to work out how physical we could get Kong. Um, and I, there was a gorilla expert in New Zealand, mm-hmm. and I spent a day or two with him learning about how they would slap their chest, which is not how they do in the movies, or, and why, right. why they do it. And, and we were very keen to get the body language right. And there was something about building a nest every day. Gorillas like to build nests and things. Wow. Um, so we did a lot of research. But it, it, the everybody else was doing Lord of the Rings, so yeah. I didn't get much time. Um, and then, in a nutshell, um, <clears throat> I know what I can claim I did contribute is the whole vine sequence. Oh, excellent. I I can hold my hand up and say the idea of putting... I came up with... I like sort of... Hitchcock is my favourite director, and I like the way he thinks totally out of the box. And I thought, you know, you see Kong and these dinosaurs having huge fights and things, really kinetic. What if it was sort of slow motion because they were trapped somehow and doing this really slow motion ballet... And I th- came up with the idea of the vines, of them swinging and things, and and um, 
they took that in the film and just ran with it. But uh, um, <clears throat> we did stage all sorts of little sequences where Anne was in a vine and they were swinging and yeah. things. Um, but previous is very interesting. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about that because uh, <clears throat> obviously we've seen, you know, I think normally when we would do a, a podcast, we would talk about the film and then and sort of the narrative and the narrative beats mm. and, and yes. this happens and then 50 minutes in you see Confidence. But this is something, this idea of you kind of coming in at a particular moment or the production pipeline of a film or the workflow and the defined spheres of labour, which is, which is really interesting. What, what is Previs? Well, how, does it, yeah. how does it work? Pre- Previs are extraordinary because I think the tradition is to do a wide shot of the scene and then the director can move the camera wherever he wants to it. But, you know, me being a director... I thought, right, we've got the Kong, you know, running along, and he picks up Anne. I want to go to a close-up there, but that's not really the job of the previous director. You know, he's to stage the scene and to see the different sort of choreography. But I could, now I want to cut close there because I want to see what Anne's thinking or something. So I was sort of, sort of directing a bit too much, and interesting. <laughs> st- I was stay. You want to stage the scene, but you don't want to tell the director this is where I think you should cut or if the shot was between the legs or whatever so you try and give them options and try and give options of how he might throw Anne on his shoulder and and you try and we were sort of coming up with a lexicon of body language I think basically so, so as far as I'm just because I'm the I'm the, always the Luddite in terms of animation on this podcast so previs is animation that is made for the director and the creative team to sort of visualise yes. yes. what they might do before they've even got round to sort yes. of getting too far down yes. the production process. Yes, and the previous, we had a very rough landscape and we were sort of doing this chase scene of Kong the Three Dinosaurs. Um, but I, I think what Peter was interested, how could Kong with, you know, two arms and two legs fight off three dinosaurs come up with gags of of how to stage that um and you know and i think he was happy even if you just did a three second arm movement was i was tending i think to structure the whole sequence because i think that's how i think as a storyteller um but it was just ways of holding hands and and eyes and things and but he, he loved what we were doing and it was very useful then they sort of shut the production down while he went around the world winning Oscars and things. <laughs> quite a few of them actually everywhere. <laughs> and um, that was after about eight months of me being there I think and um, they shut the production down and I didn't get back okay. but that's fine that's fine I still get a very nice credit um, <clears throat> but I think I got a very nice personal note from them um, sort of saying something, thank you for coping with a rather awkward situation, just because Lord of the Rings was yeah. running on and nobody had time to devote to um, devote to Kong. But what I did do, and I, I like this, is um, Peter has said that he'd never actually seen the 1933 Kong on a big screen. He's always seen it on DVD yeah. or whatever. And they had a big screen. So we, we, I think it was me. I managed to find a print in Australia. Um, 
And we used to have new line screenings every Friday. The Hulk, we, I remember having, and uh, Halloween or something. Um, and one, um, one day we had uh, Kong. And the cinema there is beautiful. It's got all the characters. It's got a sky ceiling with little twinkly lights. And the characters from Meet the... Meet the Freebles, Freebies, uh-huh. Freebles, yeah, Freebles. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, the, the sort of space alien family, right? Yes. Is that, yeah, I do <laughs> and that. they're like gargoyles looking down, <laughs> and it's gorgeous cinema with popcorn and everything, and it's a real nice bonding moment. And Peter stood up beforehand and said what the film meant to him, and he said, "We have a connection." He held up a prop from the film 1933. Wow. It was one of the gas bombs that um, blows up Kong and um, everybody went crazy. And the film started and it's black and white and um, obviously, and you know, you could feel the audience, oh yeah, look at the cheesy, look at the little model boat going, yeah, yeah. that's quite good. Mm-hmm. Well, that's rather good. Oh God, how did the... And they just erupted in applause at the end. So, uh, sort of, that was the story you tell there is, so you get this call <clears> saying, will you come out and... In this at, very room. In this very in room this very where we're room. sitting and, God, that's... The Peter phone. That's and an intimidating Peter. phone. Yeah. It's Peter Jackson on the other end. And he says, can you come and visualise King Kong for me, basically? Yeah. Yes. I, I'm assuming you must have, you know, it's, it's such a seminal work um, to sort of, you know, as a stop motion... Um, uh, practitioner as well like did you go well, you must have been intimidate very intimidating to think how am I going to create no, I said yes but but how did you did you did you think I will I, I need to watch the original again or did you think if I watch the original again the ri- originals in my head yes frames in. and did oh, you right. refer did you think about that when you flew out there and started trying to sort of create a vi- Im- image of Kong or did you think perhaps it's best to, to not go there no they, they sort of had a clay model of what they thought was going to be Kong yeah but it was just this lexicon of body language, I think, is okay. what I was trying to be responsible for. What kind of Kong did you want to create, then? Oh, obviously one with sympathy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and one whose thought process one could understand. Okay, I just want to pause the podcast for a second there, Chris, because I want to talk about social media. What is social media and how can we use it? Social media is an online platform where people get together to discuss, debate and never shout at one another. But for the purposes of fantasy animation, it's a really important device for us to help grow our audience. I know a like and a retweet seem a bit cumbersome and they seem like not a big deal, but taking five seconds out of your day to do that with our posts can really help us spread our visibility. Facebook and Twitter are like standing on street corners with a megaphone, shouting at people. We are the local crazy person, and we need your help to give us a bigger megaphone. Or, if you own an actual megaphone, find a street corner and do it yourself. We are influenced by what our listeners think about what we do, and what fantasy animation might look like, both to us and to you in the future. On that note, like, share or retweet our most recent post and write below a comment, a bit of feedback or a suggestion as to where you think we might go next. Then go back and find another post and do the same. We'll give you five seconds and then we'll get back to the show. Okay, 
This is where we get deep about Kong. <laughs> Love it. Let's 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 do it. Let's talk about the original. A hundred minutes. Well, just shy of a hundred minutes, which is a great length for any film. <clears throat> 1932 it was made, released in 1933. Did they, were they really aware of how well-structured that film was? Because it's structured like a Mozart opera. The symmetry of it is extraordinary. You know, you've got man versus beast. The first half is man in the animal kingdom. They arrive by boat to an island there's a big show with Sacrificial Virgin. Yep. Um, there's a big fight with the snake. There's a big ascent to somewhere really high and phallic. Um, and, you know, the second half is animal in man. They go to an island, Manhattan, by boat. There's a big show that goes wrong with the Sacrificial Virgin. There's a big snake, which is the tube train. There's the flying things that there were in the first half. We've got the biplanes when they climb the phallic Empire State Building. And I think it is so brilliantly structured. And I I talk to, when I talk to students about storytelling, and I think every story needs to have a change of perspective, needs to have a, a device where the characters are challenged and they learn about themselves. And, you know, Dorothy has to go to Oz, which is maybe not real or whatever, but she learns about Kansas. And, you know, Shakespeare takes people to desert islands or makes them blind so they can see. There's always this narrative change of perspective. And Kong is brilliant because it sets up one story, then we see the second, the whole story again, but from the other perspective. It's it's a really it's, it's a beautiful movie and I'm from with my fantasy hat on one thank you for getting in a reference to the Wizard of Oz because we try and do that in every episode you've managed, you managed to do it for us there <laughs> and to it it's it's that sort of that journey narrative of a place of you know, sort of imaginative impo- of possibility and the way that that the original sort of takes you to Skull Island metaphorically and literally where you sort of journey to this wonderful realm of of beasts and monsters and things and then, the, and then that realm invades yes. reality whatever it and is and it that is, sort of mirroring is very clever the story it's, it's perfect mm-hmm. um, and you know if we look at it now yes the effects are I think the main problem we don't can't really get our heads around is he's not really behaving like a 30 foot gorilla in that he's too light you know to do a, a gesture in three frames a 30 foot character would take a bit longer and but you know that's the his scale is betrayed by the animation um, but that's absolutely fine um, and you know even anybody would know that's a rubber puppet or something and that's okay that really is okay that's not what it's about. Um, but, and there had been stop motion in films before. There'd been The Lost World and mm-hmm. Starovich and all sorts of... Um, and, you know, French animation and we, there was stop motion going on in our thing. But I think the moment that changed history, that changes stop motion as a special effect to an art, is the jaw-breaking. <laughs> it's so brilliant. And I, when we showed it in New Zealand, I thought, 
I hope they laugh. I hope they laugh with it rather than at it. Yeah. And the audience, <laughs> they laughed. And I tell you why they laugh. It's such an amazing moment because the whole Kong versus uh, T-Rex fight is breathtaking because we've had a musical score up to there, brilliant musical score by Max Steiner. And then suddenly Kong and the dinosaur confront each other. The music stops mid-phrase. It's like it takes your breath away. And they look at each other. Today, probably, they just go, yang, bang, 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 bang. But these two characters are weighing each other up. And you're thinking, there's a thought process going on here. No, they're just 18-inch puppets. No, but they're thinking, they're performing. And, you know, uh, Willis O'Brien had, had studied wrestlers, how they weigh them up and, and work out and manoeuvre and dance around each other. And you can see that in the film. But not only is it done in silence, other than grunts and groans and Anne going, ah. Um, you know, the score has gone, but it's clumsy. It's deliberately clumsy. And they miss, you know, Kong swipes and he misses and, and it's really clumsy and they fall and they knock Anne over and everything. It's awkward. It's, it's real. It's, it's, this is what would happen. And then Kong kills the T-Rex and it's lying on the floor, breathing away, bleeding and everything. And then he has a moment of doubt. I think that is when special effects became an art. He actually has a moment of doubt and thinks, have I killed him? And you, you get the idea of this 30-foot gorilla, 20-foot gorilla, having a moment of doubt and we suddenly love him for that and he breaks the jaw he flops the jaw yeah and it, it and he thinks yeah i've done it <laughs> Ray! yeah and he beats his chest but it's that moment it's almost a shakespearean moment of you know like richard the third yes <laughs> oh but hang on yeah, but no, it's okay. I'm and did you it. try and transpose, given what you said Oh, we about, knew we had to do that. I was going to say, because the, 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 obviously you know the original film so well, and as you say, the beats are ingrained in your mind. Yeah. Then you fast forward, again, all the things you're talking about, the kind of clumsiness and the jerkiness yeah. of it and the reality of it, yeah. gets transposed onto a digital era in which yes. digital perfection and that sort of the question mark about how perfect CG can be and, and these kinds of things. Given that you worked on or... or, or sort of had a, I like that of the lexicon of body language. I've never heard that as an idea, but did you then try and feed some of that into that? Because that's a really pivotal sequence in the film because it's one of the first times where he is <laughs> physically protecting um, yes. Andara. Like he's, he, this yes. is a moment of, it's not just a, a fight scene. And, and I think you mentioned earlier about the importance of storytelling and that, that sequence is an action sequence and a moment of spectacle, but it's a moment of spectacle that tells the story of how yes. he is protecting her. So did you then transpose that the, those sorts of thoughts and the other the character with the thought process into a, into the digital context and and how were there any challenges I guess well in, in... I think you know Peter wanted those intimate moments um, between Anne and <clears throat> and Kong and I think and silent like the, yes she doesn't yes. say that much actually yes, no. the same as him uh, I'm, saying, I'm saying him yeah. as if Kong is in but there's something that scene there where Anne juggles mm. yeah. is bizarre yeah. But it's quite tender. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, the whole thing is Kong is a monster, but you have to find those intimate moments. Mm. 
and moments of pause and and self doubt and and because you know there is, it's a love story yeah <laughs> that could only have one ending yeah <laughs> um so i think you know when you do create any character and you know i think if if i'd been on kong there would you know there would have been hundreds of people involved with it but so i i can't claim any individual thing for kong himself but the idea is you have to make him have to find the human flaws and the tenderness and everything um you you have to make him human have we've got to like him before he can be killed mm. and there's a nice matchup i suppose if we're thinking of motion capture as the human inside what the fell what <coughs> the industrial kind of i guess context of the film where there's a human inside you are you are trying to 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 find that there's a there's a nice matchup between the motion capture process where the human performs yeah. as an animal and, and obviously we know Andy Serkis has got form in that area um, but you're trying to do something sort of I don't know you're trying to find that humanity and I like that of the pauses as well yes. I hadn't really thought about because the film is you know you talked about the duration of the original the the, the Peter Jackson version is long and I don't think Kong arrives till about a hundred minutes no it's 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 a long movie, and that's it's what I'm going to. There's a lengthy build-up, isn't there? Um, which is you know character exposition and and the journey to Skull Island yeah. and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, similar sorts of, uh, I guess the first hundred minutes, an hour, hour and ten hundred is quite traditional and follows the you know the journey to Skull Island, the, the meeting of the the quote unquote natives, that sort of sequence of yes. of, of um, sacrifice. And then when Kong appears, first appears in sort of truncated body parts, and then you have the kind of full body reveal. Um, but then when Kong appears, it it's sort of, I don't know, the tendency would be to think that the film then turns into a big action movie where you're having these moments where the Kong is fighting other humans, he's fighting the dinosaurs. But actually, a lot of the moments where Kong is in the film are actually static moments or moments yes. where he's pausing in close-ups of the face. And well, these when they're things. on top of the Empire State, sure. it's they could be in a bedroom. It's an intimate space yeah. in this wide open space. You know, and he's undressing her, and it, it, it is really intimate. Um, the moment in the original film of where he undresses her and then sniffs his finger is shocking still. You know, he runs his finger down her and sniffs it, and it, you think, hang, no, hang on, that's a puppet. But, mm. you know, and I think, going back to the original, it's a very um, poetic film, because there are... You know, there's a Broadway show and there's a show on Skull Island. It's very theatrical. Um, and she's an actress. <clears throat> but, you know, it's black and white and it's very painterly. It's slightly artificial. Mm -hmm. And it, you've got the, the cut-up birds flying on glass things, on glass sheets. Um, and I think the artifice of the black and white and the the layers make us accept the artifice of Kong, you know, the limitations of Kong, mm. because it's very stylized and atmospheric. The story I love about Kong, and I, I've still got to check this is true. I pass it on anyway. Right, okay. Well, why not? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what truth shouldn't get away with a good story, so. Uh... Is because um, they didn't have uh, video playback or anything. I, I gather one day they found um, a pair of um, 
wire clippers or something on the set that they left overnight. Um, and they couldn't just take it out because it would vanish. So they moved it, animated it away like something lurking in the, in the woods. Something slithers by in its <laughs> pair of pliers. Oh, really? That they left in. To watch yeah. back and check in for yeah. it. But, um, and it's quite a brutal film, the original. Uh-huh. Well, so, I, I mean, I hadn't, I was thinking about the jaw-breaking scene in the, or the, the CJ. It's, and it it, it's it really what, is an iconic. Yeah, and obviously, as you said, you had to kind of get that in. I mean, I, I'd, lo- I'd love to talk to you more about the, the, the Vine sequence and your thought. So, as I said, it's a sort of a, pivot, of a pivotal moment, and I feel like you've got a lot to do in that in that sequence because it's a moment of jeopardy, it's obviously a moment of narrative drama and all this sort of thing. Um, the fight sequence with the dinosaurs allows, yeah, a bit of backstory and, or at least tries to give a sense of how Kong is thinking his protective nature is yes. kind of coming through and stuff. Um, and then, so, and then the violent sequence comes at the end of that, if I remember rightly, it comes at the, or it's the coda of that perhaps. Yes. I think, um, there's a sequence in log, which again, Oh yes. The rolling we, log we did in, in previous, I thought that would be quite nice of Anne if was stuck in this log. And you didn't really see what was outside. You just saw these great holes and these great shafts of light. Um, and then Peter obviously took that and put creepy crawlies and everything. Oh, yes, yes, and, yes. And, and, and logs. But what sort of direction are you getting for these ideas? Is he, is, is, are you going, right, just have a play on the, have a play and see what you can come up with? That or was how it was we've happening. got these sequences <laughs> in mind? Or, you know. Um, well, Peter said he wanted three T Rexes. Okay. So taking the original and multiplying, multiplying it. Um, but he, because he was so busy on Lord of the Rings, he just left us to it. Right. And probably some of our ideas just fell by the wayside. And so what do you do at day one? We need a we need a Kong and three T Rexes. Right. Yes. Off we go. What? what? Yes, it was like that. Right, okay. Yeah. I had a, I did have an animator called Andy, um, so he was actually doing the mechanics mm-hmm. and I was coming up with storyboards and things. Um, but, you know, there, there were other people waiting to pounce when they came off Lord of the Rings. Um, and um, Christian Rivers, who is one of Peter's best uh, colleagues, he eventually took over all the previous and everything. He's a New, New Zealand. Um, but, um, you know, I think... I can claim that a good few ideas made it into the movie. I, d- I don't know what would have happened if I'd stayed there for two, yeah, three yeah, years. Sure. But the vine, and so how did you come up with the Vine sequence? Just because I'm thinking, how could I make this different? Yeah. And, you know, the obvious way is to go blood and teeth and guts yeah. and everything. Which CG, I suppose, could do, you know, yes. in, in terms of... Um, I thought, and, I, and I think perhaps I thought of it just as a moment of turning it on its head to you know because if you do look at Hitchcock he does likes to take contrast in the plane sequence in North by Northwest you know sort of having a man in a suit in the desert you know the contrast of that man immaculately dressed and then a biplane in the open Mm -hmm. space where there are no crops crop dusting you know and I, I think every director likes to look at a scene and think well that's what it is literally but what if we did it differently or something you know um thinking outside of the box certainly when i do stage work um 
I hate anything that's literal. I've just done a play about the Brontes. And I read the script and it needed a rehearsal room, it needed Howarth Rectory, it needed the Moors, it needed um, Mad Woman in the Attic. And I thought, oh, fuck it, I'm not going to do all that. I'm not going to stop and change scenes and move furniture around. just going to be a space about books. And everything came out of the books and paper. And, and we did something in this Bronte play that people gasped every night. And I thought, bloody hell, that's so simple. And... But it was a combination of the emotion, the storytelling, and a really simple effect. Um, Emily Bronte had died, uh, and there was a square of, of, it was a raised area of books, and and um, um, Emily Bronte had died, and Charlotte, who survived her, is said to have burnt Emily's second novel. She wrote Wuthering Heights, and apparently she wrote another another novel. And um, she was worried what this next one would be in the reputation. Anyway, all we did, um, we'd started the play with lots of paper falling. And we just gave Charlotte a manuscript and she tore it. And there was a simple shaft of red light and a fan. And as she tore it, the paper rose up and it was brightly lit red. And the unexpected moment of the paper rising... And so they could see it and the shaft of red light and the emotion of, my God, she's really tearing up this novel. The audience gasped and I thought, that's what I like. I like the simple in-your-face tricks, in-camera in tricks, where there's... I don't like being literal. Um, so is, that, is there a degree of obviously ambivalence because what, a lot of the discourses around CGI is that it is this kind of pristine illusion, isn't it? That it's too smooth and it's too... Um, and, and obviously that has its own charm and, and obviously the remake of King Kong I think is... The re- but, sorry. No, I was going to say, and the, but the, and the remake of King Kong is um, very visceral in its, in its own way and, and there are people writing... Yes. I know that people have written um, pieces on particular sequences and that fight with the dinosaur and the way that the camera works and all this yes. sort of thing. But it, it's... It's very much its own, you know, excuse the pun, it's very much its own beast. CGI yes. is very much its own beast. And I wondered if there's a... Well, um, I, okay, I think storytelling. Okay, let's go back to storytelling. Um, you look at the caves in, where is it, in south of France, where there were the cave paintings mm-hmm. of buffaloes being caught. It's like a storyboard. Yeah. Further al- along the end, they put their handprints on. As if to say, this is my story. It's only a story. This is, it's it's me. I'm I did this, <laughs> you know. I, it's my day. I matter, but I've created this. This is mine. Mm. And you look at the, um, um, you know. So there's an element of artifice. Um, you look at the Greek tragedies, and you've got people in masks. So they're almost like puppets. Okay, the masks had a technical purpose of amplifying the voices, but they took away the individual and they became a puppet, basically. Mm -hmm. And they could become clouds, they could become birds, they could become conscience. They were artificial. Shakespeare walks out onto the stage in bright daylight, a 16-year-old boy with white makeup and two oranges shoved down his chemise and says, I'm Lady Macbeth, look how dark it is. Well, it isn't. She's holding a candle. That tells you it's dark. I love that artifice. Artifice has always been part of storytelling. 
um, once upon a time in a galaxy far away. Um, we like to know, <coughs> we enjoy artifice. If you, um, uh, a magician on stage with a top hat, he has to show you it's empty before he can produce the rabbit. On film, they can cut and even the dimmest audience know that if they cut, oh, they've just put the rabbit in before they can take it out. You need to have the physics there that you can transgress. Stage is brilliant because you've got the geography of an empty space and then suddenly you've got a spectacle. Where did that come from? Whatever. Um, CG takes that away. So they have to surprise you in different ways because they take the physics away, which is not to denigrate the amazing work. But in a way, um, when anything can happen, nothing's surprising anymore. <laughs> so you have to have a limit. You have to have, you have to impose the physics. You, you know, even when we do stop motion animation, we've still got gravity, we've still got the physics of the puppet, and yet we seem to be, something seems to be happening. You know, it's why we love ballet. There's a beautiful girl, and yet she seems to be defying gravity. How, does she, how can she jump so high and make it look so easy? And, you know, and I love going to ballet and hearing their footprints. You know, on film, they take them away. No, it's part of it. It reminds us of the physics, of the nature of the thing. And an opera singer, you know, we go and we applaud when somebody does a long trill or seemingly without breathing. How are they doing that? Because we know the nature, the limits of what we're being told, and yet they seem to be transgressing. And I think, you know, Disney, we know it's a drawing. We know Mickey Mouse, and we know the trick about the ears, how they're going to do that. And, um, and yet, I'm being told a story. I know it's a, a drawing. CG, I think, is in danger of losing that. Um, so somehow you've still got to play with the physics somehow before you can break them. Um, it chimes with me. This, I mean, we've talked previously, uh, Alex, about um, kind of theories of the fantastic and hesitation. I know, I know yes. very well, but all the same, and, and uh, writers on animation and, and using Disney as a case study. That I know it's a drawing. I know that it's not this, and yet I still, I yet I still believe. And, and I wonder whether, obviously, your work is largely within stop motion and puppetry and, and yes. that kind of sort of thing, and that and and the materiality of that, and working with. Um, three-dimensional models of Shakespeare coming on stage and doing yes. a five-minute rendition of all of his plays um, versus the immateriality and the virtual when you spoke earlier about the wireframes and, yes. and that sort of immateriality of CG. There's nothing. It's weightless. And there's something yes. intangible or immaterial about CG. Well, okay, let's talk about Fred Astaire because he's good. He would only film himself full body. Yeah. And usually in one take. Um, whereas if you look at MTV today... You get a close-up of a hand clicking, and then and you think, oh, well, they probably had a rest between them. Yeah. You know, whereas if you look at Fred Astaire, you think... He's in labour. <laughs> he's actually doing that. Yeah. Why is he not exhausted? Why does he not miss a beat? 
what if he dropped the drumstick? He doesn't drop the drumstick. And he's done this five-minute dance routine. And you go, wow, yes, it's beautiful and it's musical and lovely. But bloody hell, mm. how is he doing that? Mm. And I think it is the same, you know, with Kong. Yes, he's, he's climbing up a, a model of an Empire State Building. But I'm still moved by him. Mm. You know, you, you need to see the fingerprints, I think, in... Animation. And you feel like that's erased because again, this is this is that tension between the the early yeah. version and the or the earlier version, the thirty three version, uh, and the, the digital being able to erase those fingerprints. And I, I like that idea; it has to surprise you in different ways. There's a, it, it, a difference. It has to surprise you in different ways. I think, yeah. yeah. And Kong, Peter Jackson, Kong is amazing. It is long, as you say. <laughs> um, are you pleased? I mean, are you pleased? I mean, uh, well, I was pleased to be involved with. It. I would like to have stayed for the whole film. Sure. Yeah. Um, I would have liked to have done Kong, but I didn't. I, but, you know, I've, it, it's funny. Uh, feature films have sort of eluded me, really. Um, and I'm desperate to do one feature film before hmm. I pop my clogs. Um, you know, I've done lots of chil children's series. Um, recently I did 100 episodes of Twirly Woos, which is 110 minutes is how, how long is that? I don't know, but it's long. Long. Um, <laughs> as long as Peter Jackson's King Kong. <laughs> and, if not longer. And again, interestingly in Twirly Woos, and they're worth watching because they're beautiful pieces of silent comedy. Mm. Um, but some of the shots were three minutes long. And the camera just sat there. And that is exciting for an animator because you can't just start again. <laughs> Um, whereas, you know, okay, we do have video assist and you, if a, the move is wrong, you can correct the last frame. But the joy of stop motion is, is you start at frame one and carry on. And it is as near to a performance, you have to be prepared. I think CG in animation terms and, motion, and um, video assist is sort of a safety net that sometimes can just take the edge off it. You know, look at Harry. Look at Willis O'Brien, Harryhausen. How he did the skeletons without a video assist is extraordinary. Absolutely. He was working blind. I don't know how long it was before he got the rushes back, two or three days or the next day. But, you know, the lighting setup might have changed or something. You know, you, um, you had to know what you were doing. You had to be so prepared and so focused on what those characters were doing. Um, whereas a video assist, you know, I watch young animators today, and the animation is extraordinary on the feature films. But, you know, they only have a day to do one second or something, and they, they make a move, they look at the monitor, go and have a cup of tea, come back and everything. I'm, I'm used to just moving, click, moving, click, moving, mm. click. Because it becomes a performance, and I, you know, I was like Ray. I didn't have any video assist when I started, um, <clears throat> and a video assist is good for finessing, or if you knock something, or have I moved the camera? Ah, oh, yes, you know, or light blows, whatever. But my, phew, I'm I'm a bit of a luddite. You mentioned that word. <laughs> um, 
I like the performance of a character to be created in the hand, not in editing, as Fred Astaire would have liked it to be the dance performance to be there, not created by editing, which sure. is obviously, you, know, you look at films like Chicago and Moulin Rouge, it's so quick. Yeah. And, you know, the thing like something like Moulin Rouge, you look at those costumes and you think, you know somebody who spent nine months working on the colour of the feet and you don't darn see the feet. Mm, yeah. You know, so I wonder. So I don't know where that. Came no, no, from. no. It's 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 it's. I I think I have a two part question because I've been formulating based on some of the things we've been saying here to, about sort of the role of you know animation as as a medium that's historically been able to conjure the imagination and the yes. role of fantasy and all that. And it seems to be what you're saying here, which it says never quite struck me before, which is that with stop motion or cell animation, what you've got is a fundamental act of imagination whereby you yes. imagine the drawing has come to life. You imagine yes. the the puppet is moving. And you don't have that with CGI, do you? Because no, you don't need to no. imagine that a computer can move things, because it just can, immaterially in the world. You come, you talk about myths and things. Yeah. You know, shamanism. You know, uh, as a shaman or a wise man sitting down under a tree, gather around children, I'm going to tell you a story. They use their imagination. Close your eyes and imagine, yes. yeah. It's, and that's you that know. participation. And, okay, I'm going to talk about my favourite thing of all is Warhorse. Oh, right, yeah. And I think that has changed everything. Changed everything for me. Did, did you see Warhorse? The live the theatrical. Yeah, yeah, with the performance of that. The sort of live yes. puppetry of the, okay, the, the you know, horse. It's story of World War I. Can't get much bleaker than that. <laughs> and you would, th- And they thought, can we tell a story about World War I with puppets mm. will the audience laugh um and there's a scene in the second <clears throat> act where the horse is caught in the a horse is caught in um, is dying of yeah. gas poisoning and it limps on and it's got these tattered rags hanging from it and it's breathing and it's stumbling and you can see the operators stumbling and it's this monumental story of tragedy in the war and the horses use it as a device to see the inhumanity of it all um, and this horse stumbles and collapses with its operators and our hero finds him and can't bear to see an animal in pain and he stabs it in the ear with his dagger he stabs a bamboo horse in the ear with its dagger 2,000 people gasp and cry and then what they do I, I just can't believe they did it and I'm so glad they did it the horse breathed its last, and you can see the operators breathing it. When it's dead, the three operators just stand up, put their rods down, and bow to the horse, and walk back into the shadows. People weep profusely. (laughs) I've wept 20 times at that scene. And I think, why? You've just shattered any fourth wall that never existed anyway. But it's because... You become part of the story. Yeah. You you give it. You see a horse there, dying, um, but the fact that the operators can, in the middle of this, thank the puppet, and it doesn't ruin the moment. It makes it better. And I think it's when you say to the audience, "You are part of the story. You are part of the story of this eighteen-inch puppet that you can see all the fur moving." But we're going to perform it, so you are putting in some of the information. You are part of it. And 
you are part of the story and I worry that sometimes that you know the superhero of these Marvel films and I'm, I'm not a superhero person um, but you know the first time Christopher Reeve flew as Superman was magnificent because you knew how are they doing that he has to be on wires and yet the combination of the score but now it's so easy for people to fly and things so how do you get that back how do you invite the audience to participate with something that that hasn't got that sort of root in materiality or that root in something an object that we know cannot move but does move um or how how when you worked on kong what did you try to do to alleviate that or offer them something different maybe uh, where's the place of fantasy in yes. this? Um, that is a tricky one. I like to ask impossible questions yeah, on this podcast. Yeah. I'm notorious for it. I apologise. Because I, I found, I mean, I found you saying about the, the reaction to Warhorse. Obviously, there are moments of, of pause and stasis in the new in the, in the remake of King Kong that that the CGI is potentially very good at, but. Yeah, I mean, I, Kong is certainly very graceful in the movie. So yeah. watching it, like Kong in in the original, I think perhaps is graceful in a different way, but is is quite brutish as well and powerful and imposing, yeah. which all adds to this materiality. And this Kong is very, you know, as I said, there's that ice skating sequence, yeah. which is not completely odd because it's like, yes, you've sort of been dancing throughout yeah. the movie in a weird way. So there is a way they make a virtue of it, but I, I still don't know how you I get think, back to that. No, but I think why the ice skating scene works is. Because it's layered with enjoy this moment because it's not going to last. Storm is coming, winter's yes. coming, yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> and you know, because it's been set up, that they're on the run and they just have a brief moment of tenderness together, yeah, mm-hmm. before it goes wrong. And there's a layer where we also know it's the remake of Kong, so we know, you know, I mean, I'm assuming. Hardly anyone who saw oh, the remake knew they know where that's going to come. No, they know who's where, what building he's about to climb. Um, um. But I, I don't know. You know, maybe films are literal. They have to be literal, but they're not because, you know, it says Peter Jackson's film of King Kong yeah. with you know, um, with the list of the actors, Jack Black. So it says straight away. Yes. It is interesting that the it's film is real. set at the time of the original, uh, and, and there's there's a lot of references to the fact that yes. Fay Ray can't be in the film because she's filming, a, you know, filming yes. something else, yes. and we know what that yes. is. Um, but what's interesting is obviously the film is one of those films that's about filmmaking. Uh, yes. But what struck me as well is that there's a sort of interplay between they don't want to film on a backlot. I think at the start of the film they don't want to film on a backlot because they want to go out and do it for real. Yes. Yes. Which is ironic because they're going off and filming on a virtual CG backlot. Yeah. So actually, and I think Jack Black at one point says something to do with um, they want to, to rather than go onto the backlot, they want to go to the real primitive world never before seen by man. And ultimately, they use technology and CG to do that. Um, but there's something yes, around. And he's very obsessed with capturing, isn't he? That yeah. that character. The but isn't it interesting that, that that I and I don't know yes. whether this is the case, but it reminds me of something you said earlier about. Mars attacks and, and being on that kind of cusp and whether the film itself is and I, and I don't know whether this is true but whether or not the remake of King Kong is, is about the ability of the digital to be recorded that it's it's the film is legitimising CGI because look it, it's still before our eyes like it's still it can be recorded and it's still just a part of entertainment and, and it's not immaterial and inconsequential it's something that can be committed to film really yes and I don't know whether that's it but it, it 
the, I guess we always have this conversation and we will always have this conversation when films are about filmmaking. What's the film saying about filmmaking today versus what it was in the 30s? And I, and I, don't, I don't know. And then that's doubled because the film itself is a remake of a film that was in the 30s. And so I'd love to, I'd love to watch it again when I have a spare 20 hours um, <laughs> to sit back and watch it and, and, and think some of these... Because, you know, the film is yes. about film, it's about animation, about effects. Okay, let's talk about dinosaurs. Every stop-motion animator is born with a hand reaching towards a rubber dinosaur. Oh, so, so I have this thing with skeletons as well. Yes. Skeletons, skeletons and, and dinosaurs. dinosaurs. So but why dinosaurs? Yes. I think I know. I think I know. We're giving life to things that are inanimate. What's more inanimate than a skeleton? Yeah. Or a dinosaur mm. that's gone? You know, we want... To give life, um, and, and I suppose perform because you said earlier that all all animation is a performance, and obviously you've yes. written and you would consider yourself a performer as you yeah, play with yeah. a mug or a yes, yes, pen or a yeah. pair of pliers or something. Yeah. Um, so you you want to perform as something that isn't yes there yes, but it it I think dinosaurs because they've gone, we don't want them to go. We want to give them life and skeletons. We want to, you know. The ancient Egyptians mummified people and gave them food to keep them going in the afterlife. And we don't like the idea that this is it. We hope there's more. We hope there is life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every art form, ballet, opera, drama, whatever, has something about bringing something inanimate to life. Capalia, the ballet is all about a doll coming to life and somebody, the hero, flirting with it and his girlfriend getting all thing. There's operas, um, Tales of Hoffman, somebody falls in love yeah. with a big puppet. Um, Frankenstein, sure. mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's giving life to something. And is that life, you know, again, I was talking about the device of um, that allows the author <laughs> to speak is Dr. Jekyll the real guy or is Mr. Hyde the real guy, you know? Um, but it's the same person, but it's something artificial. The thing I always talk about is Mary Poppins. Um, Alex's eyes light up, <laughs> one of his favourites. Yeah. Well, it's the film is called Mary Poppins. And the standard story, there's a family needing healing. Um, they can't do it themselves. So there has to be an outside device that comes along, makes the family see themselves and heal themselves. And it's usually a supernatural device like Mary Poppins, Peter Pan, or Alice going under underground, whatever. Something fantastical. Let's fantastic. Let's, a moment of or, fantasy, yeah. yeah. Or Jiminy Cricket talking mm-hmm. to Pinocchio. Nobody else sees Jiminy Cricket, you know. Um, but Mary Poppins, we know we get a bit of her character and we know there's possibly a history with Bert, but at the end of the film, she's done all her work and the family go off and fly a kite. Um, they don't even say thank you. And how do we know what Mary Poppins is feeling? Because she's British and she's prim and proper and she can't just say fucking kids why didn't they say bloody thank you so 
she has to have a device to let us know, and it's the talking umbrella, mm-hmm. who says, well, there's gratitude for you. You do all this work. That's as it should be. And there's a moment that we see her, her pain, her emotion, mm. but it has to come from something outside. Mm-hmm. She is outside of the family, and she's healed it, but we need to know about um, her. And always I love something... The idea that something artificial is telling the truth. And I think that's what art is. Oscar Wilde. God, we've gone from Shakespeare. Oscar Wilde, Greek tragedy. Um, Oscar you Wilde. forgot about the 20-foot ape, actually. Okay. <laughs> well, yes. But yes, it's you, you incredible. Know, um, Oscar Wilde said, Man is seldom himself when he speaks in his own voice. Mm-hmm. Give a man a mask mm. and he'll tell you the truth. Give a man a 20-foot ape, he'll tell you... Something about relationships and things. Give a, a man um, a talking umbrella and you'll know what somebody's feeling. Um, and of course, back to Hamlet. This device, we've got madness in it where people are speaking the truth when they're mad. We've got um, Ophelia sings songs before she goes mad and in the songs she can say things that she couldn't say in conventional society. But best of all is the skull. Hamlet holds a skull, which provokes this rant about mortality and everything. It's just a prop, but it's this externalization of internal things. And I, I think that's, that's what I love about art, is when yeah. these innocent things have so much weight put on them. And you know that's what animation is, basically, is they're, they're objects, and yet they're... Res- they're bowed under with metaphor and resonance and and you know we we look at you know my puppets and you know they're not puppets they've got seam lines I mean they're not humans they've got seam lines they look like Greek puppets and everything mm. but the emotion is real yeah and the, the metaphor is real I was going to say that's that's the thing I think that combines fantasy and animation is you mentioned the well first of all the artif- using artificiality to tell the truth um and an interiority with this externalization of inter, uh, internal yeah. things. That's yeah. uh, I think it's one of the things. Imagination. It's one of the things. Metaphor. But Greek things myths. Connect. Greek yeah. myths. Let's talk about Greek myths and religion. Really, on tricky ground there. But what are they? Do you think the Greeks actually believed there was a man sat up there, or did they like the idea that our crops have failed? So maybe we did something wrong. Maybe we planted them wrong. Let's play pray to the god of crops and apologize and let's just think about what we did and i think this whole thing of externalizing through gods is a way of making sense of our life and um he's not here but i have a few i have a teddy who's been with me every day of my life and um i talked to him at the end of the day mm. he's my yorick skull in hamlet he's something artificial that allows me to make sense of my day and I think that's what Greek myths are about to you know because the myths get very complicated and they change from generation to generation and you know Stephen Fry will change them and um, he'll find a new meaning for them but there is this element of truth that of artifice that tells the truth I think 
So as a because I'm, I'm conscious of of time and I, I I but I would I to be honest could keep this conversation going for hours. But as a sort of way of trying to bring all these threads together yes. and taking us back to Skull Island just one more time. It's it's what does King Kong mean then? Because because that's such a resonant story and it's a story that if you've I, I mean I don't know I don't you know I, I've not got children but I, but 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 I when I saw the remake of King Kong I actually hadn't seen the original but of course had seen the original because yeah. these images are just ingrained throughout pop culture so what is it about a story of a giant ape that we use what well, does it mean to us or what does it mean to you it is the beauty and the beast mm. and it is about judging people and you sort of want them to get together. <laughs> but how would that ever have happened? What would have, where would it have gone? Um, but, but it reveals, I mean, it reveals the humanity or the... And I said this to you well, yes. about, about yes. Jack Black's character. I couldn't figure out whether I was supposed to like him or... Yes. or I, I wasn't sure. There was a kind of distance there. And it was through their relation, their reactions to Kong as a figure who was... I think... It, Yes, I think exactly. Um, Kong brings up the best and the worst of people. He brings up the best humanity in Anne, but the worst in in the other characters who just want to kill him and put yeah. him on display, which is what we do with things we don't understand and things. But Anne sees some something in his eyes and his history and the fact that he's alone. And... You know, maybe Kong, because he doesn't speak, he doesn't sing in the musical, thank God, in Broadway, because uh, that would totally destroy it. Kong in song. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so he is this metaphor bringing out the best in other people. And we, he is Mary Poppins's umbrella. And we, in turn, <laughs> bring out the best in him, because if, if, if you treat him with compassion yes. and humanity, then he is a beautiful creature. Yeah. But if you treat him with... Disdain and fear, he's a monster. Him. You know, the film crew abuse him totally and put him on show and take him out of his environment. So, um, you know, he loses his power when he's in New York. It, I mean, it's so, such a complex piece. And I, I, I want, did they really, I think they m- must have written such a detailed storyboard and played with it so carefully. They must have done so much homework because it is. You can't take one frame out of the original King Kong. No, absolutely not. You know, it's perfect. You know, and I, I've read quite a lot about the making of it, and it seems a bit haphazard. I thought, no, somebody, whether Marion C. Cooper, must have been saying, no, it has to be this and it has to be that, and we have to have the snake because in Manhattan we've got the tube train. Mm, that mirroring, you have yes, to have that. Yeah, we have to have that. Somebody must have been guiding that because it's so perfect, so perfect, and um, it is a masterpiece. Absolutely. Well, that's okay. a what great. Well, yeah, what a great. <laughs> great it's a masterpiece. We started with the masterpiece. We ended so like Kong. We've sort of gone gone full circle. Um, Barry, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and, and I've loved talking to you. So I'm sure everyone's going to love um, having listened to some of the stories and, and thoughts on animation and fantasy. Well, you know, I hope it doesn't come across that. I did this on Kong Kong. It was me, me, me. No, it wasn't. It was just, you know, a million people. But I just happened to be there at the beginning. And but it's nice to hear from someone that was was part yeah. of this massive, you know, group. That's what's. I'd like to be part of it longer. Yeah. And I do like the film, and 
I do thank them for a very nice credit at the end of the film. We, um, because I came back and I wasn't part of the actual filming, um, I, I went to see the film with my sister in Ireland on crisp Boxing Day when it came out. And I was thinking, because I didn't get a credit on Mars Attacks, and I thought, mm, there's a lot of my ideas still there, and I was a bit upset about that. And I thought, oh, I hope I get a credit on Kong. And it went on for about 15 minutes. <laughs> and, oh, no. It's not coming, yeah. It's not coming. And there was there was really dry air conditioning in the thing, and my eyes were starting to water, and my, my sister was saying, don't worry, it's all right. And then all literally about... I'm the third name from the end, okay. <laughs> and I get a special thanks, which is quite nice. Well, let us, I suppose we should give you our own special thanks. Yes, um, thank you. And, and third name from the end is, is perfectly good for us. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, wonderful to chat to you. Um, but is there any? Is there any? This this podcast will go out uh, sort of in the summer, sort of July, August. Is there anything that you'll be working on? Any plays or anything like that that listeners might be interested in? checking out or is there some work you'd like them that there's some unappreciated gem out there they need to go and um, see my most recent short film mm-hmm. well do watch the twirlies especially people who have children because it is beautifully and i didn't animate it i directed the animation um they are beautifully performed and the technical challenges of twirly woos is a bit like kong in that the twirly-woos seem to be running along the surf or they seem to be riding the back of a horse um, when because the first half of every episode they're in the real world and the second half of the episode they're in their own enclosed world of the boat they live in and um, the boat scenes had three-minute takes which as any animator will know that's exciting and terrifying because you can't just start again so do watch the twirlies, they're on about three times a day on CBBs. And if you look carefully in three episodes, you'll see me as a comedy fisherman, comedy chef, <laughs> yeah. and a comedy actor at one point. Um, and it was lovely, I loved performing. Um, but I think... You said you had recent shorts. Yes, if you look at my short films... Uh, are they available on your website? Yes. Do you have a website? Um, they're all... All available on YouTube, apart from Plume. Oh yeah, which isn't. Um, but I'd I'd have a look at Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. That seems to work. Interesting thing for animators. It was the lowest budget of anything I've ever, ever, ever worked on. But such low budget does force you to be creative mm. and to make every frame count and do your homework and. You know, people may or may not like my films. That doesn't matter. But it's they are considered. Every colour is chosen. Every composition is chosen for a reason, and it echoes. You know, and that is why I like Kong because it's mm. considered, and it, it it works. And I think basically you can't do art without doing your homework. You have to do your homework. Well, well, let's go and do some homework. Yeah, let's go <laughs> Thank you for your considered thoughts on today's episode. Um, listeners, you can always find us at fantasy-animation.org as well as Twitter, fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research on Twitter as well as on Facebook. Um, great to talk to you, Barry, and um, we'll see you next time. Bye. That's it, folks. So-so. Step back. Clear the area. That's it. Shut up, boys. Why'd he do that? Climb up there and get himself cornered. The ape must have known what was coming.
It's just a dumb animal. Doesn't know nothing. What does it matter? Airplanes got him. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast.